0: hi this is gay hendricks author of the big leap and you're listening to my quest for the best
1: listen up small business founders senior managers and rising stars bill ringle here host of my quest for the best where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential on each episode i bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people managing your business and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Gay Hendrix. Gay Hendrix has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind therapies for more than 45 years. He's written more than 40 books, including bestsellers such as Five Wishes, The Big Leap, and Conscious Loving. Gay has offered seminars worldwide and appeared on more than 500 radio and TV shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, and 48 Hours. It's such a delight to have him here on my quest for the best. Gay is here to talk about his book, The Big Leap, Conquer Your Hidden Fear and Take Life to the Next Level. He lives with his co-author and mate for more than 35 years, Dr. Katie Hendricks in Hohai, California. Welcome, Gay.
0: Very good. Thank you, Bill. I want to appreciate that you mentioned Katie because uh, she and I are just now actually entering our 40th year together. So uh, we've been working and living and um, enjoying life together since 1980. That is so exciting. I met my
1: wife in college and we just celebrated 30 years just last year, last July. And it's just so special to have a relationship that goes back decades.
0: Well, congratulations. That's a a great achievement uh, in this modern day and age.
1: I reflect on how it becomes more and more rare and unusual, which is unfortunate, but hopefully from learning some of the principles and people focusing on things that we'll be talking about today, more people can share in that delight.
0: So when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? My mom really inspired me, Norma Hendricks. She was a writer. She was a journalist and wrote a daily column for the newspaper newspaper a local newspaper, the Leesburg Commercial. This was in central Florida near Orlando. So I always saw her typing. That's my earliest memories of her was banging away on a, do you remember those old Underwood typewriters that uh, old-fashioned typewriters? Well, she had one of those and it made a racket. So she was always pounding away on her typewriter and uh, drinking coffee and smoking a camel cigarette. So that was my permanent memory of my mother growing up. But she was a terrific writer and she really uh, helped me a lot in my early days because I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And so she would help me a lot when I was in high school, learning how to compose things and that kind of thing. So she was a big inspiration. My granddad and grandmother were also, they lived next door and they were Incredibly important to me growing up because my mother was gone a lot. And so I kind of lived with my grandparents who just adored me and I adored them and I could do no wrong. And <laughs> so it was, a, and my grandmother was a great cook. And so it was a wonderful place to have next door. I also got inspired. The memory that came up was when I was about, I think I was about 15 or 16, I went to a youth day at Florida Southern University in Central Florida, in Lakeland, Florida. And they had a guest minister that gave this incredible speech. And I actually mentioned him in my book, Five Wishes, uh, because it was such a key turning point in my life. But his name was J. Wallace Hamilton, Reverend J. Wallace Hamilton. And he was the pastor of a big church in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. So he gave this speech directed at us kids, you know, when we were all there, 15, 16, 17 years old. And he basically gave us this message that was so radically different from anything I'd ever heard in a church setting. He said, don't be afraid to be yourselves. He said, people are always going to want to try to sell you on safety in life, but go take some risks, you know, find out who you are and let yourself be forged in the fire of life. And anyway, so it was so different. I remember being talking to my girlfriend afterwards, just kind of stunned by that. And it was kind of like it rearranged my brain cells because where I grew up was an extremely conservative part of Florida and still is, you know, it's very conservative politically and lots of other ways too. So it was hard to get that kind of a message. So it was, um, very life-changing to me. So those are a couple of the ones that I think of right offhand.
1: hand. Let me ask you, can you recall thinking about, and and I've had, I can relate to the experience when somebody just makes a single statement and it suddenly recalibrates and and refocuses your life because the, the words were so profound and applicable. Do you remember making a decision sometime after that, those words came to the fore and that sense of being able to have those limits removed or that encouragement to go beyond that, to really be yourself and not be afraid to be yourself, really played a role in some decision or action you took.
0: Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, not long after that, I went to the Leesburg Public Library and it set off this kind of questioning in me, the Reverend J. Wallace Hamilton speech set off this wondering in me about, well, who, who am I really? And what do I really want to do? Because You know, I hadn't really put that much thought into that. And so I went to the library and I was looking through books and I came across a book called The Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini. And it was a book about a a man, it was his autobiography, and he was considered one of the first true Renaissance men, that he wrote poetry, but he also was involved in politics, and he played a musical instrument, and he was also involved in his family life, and he was also involved in business. And I realized that I didn't want to do any just one thing in my life. I wanted to kind of open it up broadly so that I could go in lots of different directions. And lo and behold, it's exactly what happened that I didn't realize that my dream had come true until many years later. But you know, I've been able to, for the last 20 or more than that, more like 30 years now, pretty much exclusively focus on doing only what I most love to do. And so that's led me into... Entrepreneuring businesses, which I then later sold to public companies and investments, and it's into writing lots of books, and so wherever the the spirit seems to pull me, it seems to just take me around in different directions where I feel like I can make some kind of a difference. Gay, what you talked about with
1: hearing from Reverend Wallace Hamilton is he said, don't be afraid to be yourself. And that reminds me so strongly of what you refer to and you've named as the upper limit problem in your book, The Big Leap. Can you describe
0: what the upper limit problem is? Yes. The upper limit problem is our programmed tendency to limit ourselves or sabotage ourselves when things start going better than we have a framework for so well like one of my clients for example some years ago i mentioned in the book that his father was a real estate guy and had never made more than two hundred thousand dollars a year and so my client who was you know 35 37 years old had run up against this $200,000 $200, barricade himself. And every time he made more than $200,000, he would find a way to lose money on another project. So he was always dipping back below where he, well, and that's the upper limit problem in action. And when we worked on it, it only took us a very short period of time. Once he started looking into why that might be true, he Im- immediately said, oh, I don't want to surpass my father. I'm afraid it'll make him feel bad. And bing, there it was. And so that led to what I call 10-minute sweaty conversation. We need to have these 10-minute sweaty conversations that we've been avoiding. And so we had this 10-minute sweaty conversation that turned out wonderfully well and not sweaty at all. But we kind of think we get scared going into these conversations, you know, and we wonder, oh, am I going to get rejected? But we sat down with his dad and we talked it over and his dad said, I would love nothing more than for you to make $300,000, dollars $5,000 a year. It would make me proud rather than make me feel bad. And so we kind of cleared the air with that. And guess what happened? Lo and behold, he broke right through. And the last time I actually saw him was at a parade. And he waved at me across the way and um, flashed me some fingers, which indicating how many hundreds of thousands of dollars he'd made. And so I got to see the example there. Here's one of my big complaints as a, a coach and a therapist over the years is clients don't always come back and thank you when they have a big breakthrough. They forget that part. But I happened to find out from him uh, that he had broken through to closer to $300,000 the next year.
1: That's terrific. And what I think bears some elaboration here is the fact that the upper limit problem isn't only about what we earn. It could be around closeness. It could be around being generous with others with our time. It could be around any number of areas, but it still has that same kind of thermostat behavior that you describe when we start to feel like we've gone beyond some internal preconception of what is too much we start to sabotage or pull back in those areas. Is that correct?
0: Yes. And you mentioned that a lot of entrepreneurs tune into your show. And I'm an entrepreneur many times over myself, and I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs. And one of the things that entrepreneurs have happen a lot is that oftentimes they're putting so much attention into their business that things start to fall apart at home. And so there's a tremendous need for balance in the whole entrepreneur game, as well as other aspects of business and life, because what happens is that's often the place where the upper limit problem happens. You mentioned in the area of intimacy. Well, what often happens is the busier we get at work, oftentimes the less attention we're putting into intimacy and things that make the flow of intimacy work well. And when that happens, then we start getting squeaky wheels at home and then they get louder and louder and louder and until we pay attention to them. So what I like people to do is go into their entrepreneuring activities knowing that it's going to have an effect on everybody around them and building that in so you can maintain the flow of connection with your loved ones as you're putting this amazing amount of work into the business. You know, one of the funniest things I ever hear, and I was also talking to uh, one time uh, Yurka Risavi at uh, Gaia.com out in Boulder, and he's launched many businesses and has also done many mergers and acquisitions. And uh, we both agree that the funniest thing we ever hear entrepreneurs say as they're getting started is we'll often ask them, why do you want to be in business for yourself? You know, just at the fundamentals. What is this all about? Why? And one of the funniest answers they always give is. Because I want more time for myself, <laughs> and uh, I see you're laughing right away too. Every group of entrepreneurs I've ever mentioned this to breaks out in fits uh, of giggles when I say that, because you know we all sort of start out with this illusion that if we're not working for somebody else, we're going to have more time. But my daughter once asked me, you know, what does it take, really take, Dad, to be successful in business? When she was in her early twenties, and I said, well, the best way to do it is find something you absolutely love to do that you don't mind focusing on all the time, that you really enjoy focusing on all the time. So I'm proud to say that she found her way into an occupation like that, but I know many people do not. And so they kind of wake up later on in life like I did, you know, that I didn't really discover the kinds of things that are in the big leap until... You know, I got well up into my adult life. I was probably around 30 or 35 before I started realizing, oh, I have these upper limits, especially in my business life and in my love life that I will get along well with my then girlfriend for three days and then we'll mess it up and then we'll get along well for three more days and then we'll mess it up. And it hadn't occurred to me there's this kind of internal governor on how good I was allowing myself to feel and how much love love and abundance I was letting myself feel. And so as I began to think about all that, I realized all the stuff that's in the big leap, what that was based on were some old fears that I was carrying around inside me.
1: So one of the ways that you offer to help people uncover their big limitation problem, the upper limit problem, is to ask a question, which is some variation of this. How much abundance, joy, and success am I willing to let into my life today? Can you give that some more context in how to use a question like that in order to uncover and remove the upper limit
0: problem for people's lives? Yes. The answer to that question lies in your body as well as in your mind. And so in asking that question like, How much love am I willing to allow into my life? How much good feeling am I willing to let myself feel? How much wealth am I willing to allow to come into my life? Those are really expansive questions. They're what I call in the book wonder questions. A wonder question I define as a question that you really, really, really want to know and you really, really, really don't know. And so when you hatch a wonder question and launch it into your consciousness, you put your mind and body and your creative spirit in a beautiful dynamic tension because you're launching this question that says, hmm, here's something I really want to know. How much love would I be willing to feel in my life? And so when you ask a question like that, the answer becomes the life change that you really want to see and feel in yourself. I give so much credence to wonder questions because almost everything good that's ever experienced in my life has come out of a wondering like that. And when I began to realize how much power we have over our own consciousness, I realized that I was focusing on the wrong kinds of questions in life. Like, how can I protect myself? And how can I get by with not revealing myself? And those kind of twisted and torque questions that you get growing up, you know, and I grew up in kind of a rough and tumble neighborhood where people were not encouraged to do things like feel their feelings and tell the truth and those kinds of things. In fact, those things were often punished, you know, if you kind of revealed your feelings or um, let something slip. So it was uh, a lot of overcoming that I had to do of some of my early programming, which was about not feeling my feelings, not telling the truth, not having a life purpose, not asking the big questions. And so as I begin to hatch these wonder questions, I realized that they were so powerful that they would often come true almost overnight. That if I say, okay, well, I'd be willing to increase the amount of love that flows through my life. Well, boom, suddenly it would start happening. And same thing in the abundance area that when I begin to wonder about, hmm, I wonder if I could take charge of the amount of money that flows through my life rather than relying on a paycheck. And once I begin to ask those more expansive questions, boom, suddenly abundance flowed in from every possible direction. And it's continued to do so for the past 40 years. So it's become kind of a part of my path in life. Wherever I come across some issue or problem, I want to help people Float these wonder questions because nothing better I've found that can really pull the deep creativity up out of yourself.
1: It's such an easy thing to listen to you describe the wonder questions. Do you have any tips for people listening about how to construct them or a tip or two of ways to avoid that can help us get a, a shortcut to arriving at a, an appropriate level of question that'll open up these areas based on your experience?
0: Well, first of all, Bill, let me say how much I appreciate that question because I do sometimes 50 interviews a month and it's rare for me to hear a really great question. So thank you very much for asking that question. And yes, the answer is yes. And let me tell you exactly, I wish more people would ask about the detail of this. First of all, I always like to, in my seminars when I'm teaching wonder questions, I have people start every wonder question with a sincere hmm, like there's a sound you can make, which is a a sincere wonder hum, which is like I just did it hmm, like hmm, I wonder what the temperature is going to be this afternoon, or hmm, I wonder what I'd like to have for lunch today, or hmm, I wonder how my wife's flight is going to go tomorrow when she takes off for to teach in Germany. So hmm. Those kinds of sincere wonder questions, let's apply that same hmm to the bigger questions of life. And the reason I do that is, first of all, if you make the sound hmm and get it sounding right in your body, you always know how to contact the genuine, sincere wonder part of yourself. And the other thing is that I read somewhere way back that when people hum hmm, it is unifies the right and left hemisphere across the corpus callosum and you know i don't know if enough about the neurophysiology of all that to, to say much about that but i think it is kind of interesting that a hmm is both a concept and a sound hmm. the concept is i really don't know and i'd like to know hmm. and then the sound so i can see why it might unify left and right hemisphere so anyway start your wonder question with a sincere hmm and find the sound in yourself. So then the next part is to ask the most expansive wonder question you can create. Like, for example, don't use a closed end one. Like, I wonder if I will ever get any love in my life. (laughs) So that's not very expansive. But I wonder how much love I can enjoy in my life. I wonder how much abundance I can let myself appreciate. So those kind of big wonder questions have a singular effect, what I call opening space. A good, sincere wonder question opens that creative space. Hmm. I wonder how much love I can receive. Well, right away, your body will start getting fascinated by that. And it'll say, oh, okay, hmm, how can we do that? And begins to call on your deeper creativity. And that's magic. That's pure magic. And I get to live on a steady diet of that when, you know, because we have a lot of people that come to our seminars and everything. So I get to see people have that light bulb come on all the time. But I'll tell you, in 35 years of seeing that light bulb come on, I have never, never, ever gotten tired of it because seeing a person suddenly take the reins of power over their life. Sometimes of the books I've written, the big leap, the fan mail I get from the big leap, I look forward to it so much because it's often so rich and full of detail. And of all the other books I've written other than Conscious Loving, that's the one we get the most fan mail for. And What I get to kind of live on a steady diet of is one person after the other saying, because I read the book, I spotted an upper limit I had in the area of whatever, love or abundance or even getting along with my mother-in-law or something like that, a very practical thing. A person will write in and say, because of that book, I'd never seen before how that was an upper limit. And suddenly when I asked the right wonder question, the problem disappeared. And that's oftentimes the thing that I find most amazing is that the act of asking the wonder question, because it creates so much open space, you let go of whatever the barrier was that you were holding on to that was manifesting the problem in the first place. And it allowed this opening to happen and a release of the issue. So the asking the question created a magical answer all by itself.
1: Okay, what you're describing is so relevant to business leaders today, because everyone is asking questions about, how do I bring more creativity into my um, environment? How do I get people to collaborate more and not worry about turf fights so much? And they're asking these questions, in many cases, purely from a cognitive standpoint. And what you're doing, just with starting off with that hum, a sincere hum, a sincere curiosity, is connecting it with the wisdom in the body. And that's where we really can tap into a lot more of our power. You help us understand how to get there through this very seemingly simple technique, but it's very, very significant. And it reminds me of a quote that you used in the book from Fritz Perl, who's the founder of Gestalt Therapy, when he observed that fear is the excitement without the breath. And that often connects with the upper limit problem,
0: doesn't it? Can you explain a little bit about how that relates to it? Yes. Well, many studies have shown, and you can even prove this to yourself, that when you get scared, there's a tendency to hold your breath. For example, if somebody sneaks up behind you and says, boo, and scares you, what do you do? You go, "Ah!" and you snatch an in-breath like that, if it genuinely scares you. So it's a physiological thing that's wired into us that oftentimes we hold our breath when we're scared. And so what Fritz Perls was getting at is the same machinery that runs excitement also runs fear if you hold your breath. So if you hold your breath, that same machinery registers fear. Whereas if you go ahead and take a few deep breaths, when you get scared, you'll find that you get excited and you have some creative solution come up to the problem, but it's hard to, Get much of a solution going if you're holding your breath or restricting your breath. So, if you go back hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years to when our fear mechanisms first evolved, it was to our advantage to be very still and hold our breath for a moment when we got scared. Because if some animal was looking for us, you know, we wanted to. <gasps> hold our breath and be absolutely still and, and not make any noise and that kind of thing. And so we still have those physiological mechanisms still wired into our body today. So we have to learn to manage those. And one of the best ways to manage your emotions is not to try to control them, but to be with them, to open up to them, to breathe with them and to be honest about them. One of the best speeches I ever gave early on in my career, I have to tell this, when my first book came out uh, in 1975, I had never really given a big speech before, like in front of 150 people at a conference. And and so my book came out and became an unexpected bestseller. It was the book called The Centering Book. It was a book of uh, relaxation exercises and test anxiety-reducing exercises for teachers to use with children. And so um, it was uh, based on but I'd seen uh, volunteering in my daughter's first grade classroom. And so I I wrote a little book about that. So anyway, it it took off and uh, I started getting invitations to go give speeches. And the first one I gave was in Kansas City to an education audience at a conference. And there was maybe a couple hundred people in the audience and they all listened to my spiel and gave me a nice round of applause. And afterwards, this fellow came up to me And he said, I just wanted to uh, appreciate your speech. It really made a lot of difference for me. And I said, oh, well, thank you. You know, and I kind of plumped up like I was swelled with pride. And he said, yeah. He said, it wasn't what you said that was so good. It was the way you said it. And I said, oh, what do you mean? And he said, well, your voice shakes just as badly as mine does when I try to give a speech in public. (laughs) <laughs> and here's the sad thing. I hadn't realized my voice had been shaking. And so I, I, when I listened to the playback of the thing, I was realized that a lot of my speech was coming out like this, you know, and I was obviously terrified.
1: And yet it had that positive effect that somebody said, man, I just feel better having listened to you because I can do that.
0: Exactly. And what happened was I had to zip off then, this was in Kansas City, and I had to zip off to the Bay Area to give another speech at another education conference. So I was going to do kind of the whole thing all over again in a day or two. And so on this next speech, what I learned from the first one, I really put into play because I started out by just telling that story. I started out telling, you know, how how elated I was when the guy came up and said the speech made a difference and, and the place went berserk with laughter. And I mean, they stood up and gave me a standing ovation. And from then on, no voices ever, you know, I never realized any shaky voice in any talk, even on big venues like Oprah or something like that. It just flattened out something in my nervous system that's never uh, been bothering me before again.
1: It, you could say that, you know, the resistance melted when you saw that it, it had some sort of positive effect.
0: Yeah. And to be honest about whatever you think your limitations are, you know, that mm. uh, uh, I I heard a famous speaker one time get up and say, you know, I, I must have some trepidations about giving this speech this morning because I woke up with a slight sore throat and I'm wondering hmm, what's going on in me. And it was so beautiful to see this person just kind of unpack a few little things that people usually keep secret and like, you know, try to talk over those kinds of things. So I'm a big believer in. Uh, Um, radical transparency. I always tell my students that if there's anything you're not willing to say over the loudspeaker at uh, Yankee Stadium during a World Series, well, it's got a grip on you, whatever that thing is.
1: Yes, the secrets, the things that we're uncomfortable with. And here's an example of where you're actually admitting it and not uh, fighting it. And it just takes so much energy that we have so often to to mask or push away from or hide from the things that are limiting us and your stories just showed us that it actually helps us connect with people and, and does good often when we share the things that we feel uptight or uncomfortable with.
0: Yes, I see it live and in person all the time. And what's moving to me, though, is, you know, a lot of our upper limits, as I mentioned in The Big Leap and also in my new book to The Big Leap called The Joy of Genius. The upper limit problem is really your gateway to what I call your genius spiral. Don't try to make yourself wrong for having upper limits, because if you can spot them and move through them, they're your gateway to your genius. And so welcome your upper limits. Don't shun yourself or or shy away from them. They are all based on fears inside ourselves. All of our upper limits are based on some kind of fear. And some of the ones I mentioned in the big leap are ones I also identified in myself and other clients I've worked with. One of them that's really big is the fear of outshining other people, the fear of stealing attention from other people. Some people feel guilty if they take attention away or if they have more than someone else. And so that's a common cause of of upper limits.
1: One of the premises of the big leap, which I want to make sure people understand, is there's a big leap that happens when we spend our time focused on activities that we are perhaps you've named four zones in the book. I'll just go back to that terminology for the convenience and consistency of it. One zone is a zone of incompetence and maybe we're learning things and that's difficult, it's a struggle. Then there's a zone of competence when we've mastered something, the zone of excellence where we're very good at it and then the zone of the genius which is where we're really tapping into our gifts that we do things that are uniquely special. And so many business leaders find themselves in the zone of excellence. They continue to do things day in and day out that they're very, very good at, yet could be delegated. It's not really focusing on the areas that they are uniquely qualified to add contributions to their business. What's your perspective on what keeps people in that zone of excellence? And what more could you say about it to help people strive to move beyond it?
0: Yes, Bill, thank you again for asking a a very precise question. And um, the answer to it has been very illuminating to me. I've had the opportunity to work with all sorts of people at all sorts of levels of the game. When I first started out in 1968, I worked with juvenile delinquents until 1971. And then uh, after I got my a doctorate. I went on to be a university professor and worked with all sorts of different um, populations. And later I got into business consulting and had the opportunity to you know, spend entire days with people like Bob Shapiro and people like Michael Dell at uh, Dell Computer and others that were operating at the real top of their game. So one of the things I've seen, no matter whether your organization has 20 people or 20,000 people in it, is that talented Executives get locked in in their zone of excellence because they keep getting encouraged to do more and more and more things in that zone. And the more things they do in that zone, the more reinforcement and good at a boy, that kind of thing they get at a girl and at a boy. What happens though is they get less and less time to spend on the genius spiral. I've had so many executives tell me something, some version of the following thing. If I could just get an hour to myself to think, or well here, when people come here to work with us, we don't even start with an hour. We start with specific written in your calendar, 10 minute chunks of genius time, where you go in a room by yourself for 10 minutes and do nothing But a genius inquiry of some kind. It could be something so similar as 10 minutes asking, what is my genius at this stage of my or hmm, what is the absolutely next essential project for this company to undertake? Questions that open up big, big creative spaces. And I've seen billion-dollar businesses come out of someone like a Michael Dell or someone like a Chris Galvin at Motorola, someone being willing to ask a big wonder question like that. And, you know, there are all sorts of magic that come out of wonder questions. You know, I never knew Steve Jobs in person, but he was a genius wonder questioner. You know, because if you look through his biography and his writings and his speeches, he was all about, hmm, I wonder how I could, Invent something that would carry a thousand songs around in a person's pocket. Mm. Mm, yeah. And so once you begin to hatch questions like that, the sky's the limit in this technological Well,
1: Gay, okay, are you ready for the MyQuest for the Best Lightning Round? Absolutely. Fire away. All right. So I'm very interested in what you consider to be what are two or three components of your routine for setting yourself up for daily success.
0: I wake up early. That's not by my- I, that's just the way I wake up. I don't set an alarm or anything. I usually wake up around 4 30 or quarter five, something like that. And I go in and I usually uh, have a cup of coffee and then I come in and I may answer an email or two. And then I sit down before my kind of my formal creative time. I sit down and I meditate for about 20 minutes and then. I do my most creative work, whatever that happens to be. Right now, I'm at work on a book in the early morning hours, but it could also be some business-related thing. But whatever it is for is, I'd say between the hours of 6 and about 7.30 or 8 o'clock, I will be doing that kind of intense creative activity. And then uh, my wife likes to sleep in until around 7.30 or sometimes 8 o'clock. And so uh, once she wakes up, I... Uh, I finish all that and I make her some coffee and we hang out and talk for a while. Then she gets into her day. I I get most of my genius work done before 8.30 in the morning. And then the rest of the day, I kind of play around at different things or handle things that come up. Think back in
1: just recent times, say in the last six months, and what would you say is one of the easiest or least expensive changes you've made to your personal or professional life that's had the biggest payoff?
0: I'd have to say the systematic, beginning systematically to use certain things that have sat on my phone or my computer for a while, you know, things like Evernote and, Ah. uh, you know, some simple things that are good for organizing my life a little bit better. Uh, At this stage of my life, I used to say my little joke line was one day my assistant, if she comes in and asks me, to Let her hire an assistant for her. That's my life getting too complicated. <laughs> and little did I know that this whole vast enterprise was going to unfold every day. So now I'm kind of sitting in the back of the boat steering a, a boat that has you know eleven different websites and six different businesses and all those kind of things, and the tax filing that looks like the Manhattan phone book. so <laughs> I, I didn't realize it was going to get so big, but it's all based on things I love to do so I'd say that the the simple things of keeping a to-do list scrupulously or scrupulously learning to use my Evernote has been uh, something that's afforded me many more hours of the day of freedom that I get to focus on my creative stuff. So
1: that's a very interesting question. I want to just delve into that a little bit more. What allowed you to get into that and develop using a new tool that allowed you to have those better payoffs in using your creative energy?
0: Yes. Well, I've always thought, and I don't know if I was born thinking this way or where I picked it up, but the most elegant machinery has the fewest moving parts. And then you need to attend yourself to what can lubricate those moving parts to make sure they're moving at maximum efficiency. I created a business that I sold to a publicly traded company for $6.7 million. I created it with absolutely the fewest moving parts there were only really three or four moving parts to the business whereas i've had other businesses that had umpteen dozen different moving parts and were much easier or much harder to take care of than an than an easy less moving parts type business so i'm always thinking about how can i use the fewest moving parts, and how can I keep those moving parts really moving flawlessly and in a way that uh, doesn't require maintenance? And the answer to that is circulation, lubrication. You know, um, Andrew Taylor Still, uh, the founder of Osteopathy, said, uh, that circulation is everything the rule of the artery is supreme i think he said and and you can apply that to just about every area of life that if you have a good circulation of communication with your beloved and your household or with your children if you have the flow of communication you're wealthy you know if you have a good f- cash flow you're wealthy if you have a good flow of good feeling inside yourself you're wealthy so we need to bring in all those other forms of of wealth and realize that we are not just three-dimensional beings, but like our wonderful poet Walt Whitman said, "I am large and contain multitudes." You know, we have vast mm. numbers of selves inside ourselves that need to be working in harmony. So, the wholeness of ourselves, bringing that forth into life, into business, into our love. Gay Hendrix, author of The Big Leap.
1: You have shared so many great ideas with us today on My Quest for the Best. I just want to thank you so much for sharing your insights and perspectives and experiences. Before we say goodbye, where can people find out more about you and your work online?
0: Well, the two best places are Hendrix.com is kind of the jumping off place there. You can Find out about our seminars or find out about our coaching or find out about our nonprofit foundation and what it's up to. So it's kind of the jumping off place. Uh, If you want to go find our uh, relationship work, that's at heartsinharmony.com, heartsinharmony.com. You've got a big heart. You share so much um, with everyone who
1: encounters you. I just want to thank you again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks a lot, Bill. Great being with you. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together. And I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.